Bay Midbar in the wilderness. That is the name of this book of the Bible, uh, commonly called the book of Numbers, but the Hebrew title, Bay Midbar in the wilderness. If you are in the wilderness and are in need of sustenance, then you are in the right place this morning. First, to feast our souls on God's word and then on the Lord's supper. Let's pray as we do that. God of Revelation, speak to us again. We seek not new revealing, but we seek to understand and apply that which you have already revealed. It is your word. And so we would pray that your Holy Spirit would come and bear witness to this word of yours, that we would receive it as your word and it would change us. And so as always, we pray for the preacher in the pulpit. He is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before we get to chapter nine, let's do a quick summary review of what we've seen so far in the first eight chapters. Kids, if you've got sermon bingo out, this is going to go quick, so get ready. Ready? We start with chapter one and the first census a census of all those who would be ready to serve in the army if and when the country would go to war. Chapter two then was this picture of um, all of Israel camped and looking to the Lord. And then chapter three was the 13th tribe of Levi that was uh, camped uh, between the outer camping of all the tribes and the tabernacle itself. And they served in that priestly function foreshadowing the priestly mediation of Jesus. Then chapter four, it was the duties of the four groups of Levites, had Aaron and his sons and the Kohathites, Gershonites, and Merorites, who all had particular duties to carry out for the benefit of the whole, much as the body of Christ. We are made up of individual parts, but together we build Christ's kingdom. Chapter five then was uh, the account of purity restored for five types of sin. And we saw that sin is not just about outward acts of sin, but sin is that which separates us from God. It is the sinful condition of death. And Christ has come and Jesus was taken outside the camp that we might have life, uh, new life and even eternal life in Christ. And that brought us to chapter six and the Nazarites and 66 days for a new habit. It was that voluntary a vow of separation that had to have lasted long enough that their hair grew long and it was noticeable, but also the noticeable change of life, that when we seek the Lord uh, to change our lives, we do so leaning on his grace, but do so employing the means of grace, the word sacrament and prayer, and doing that for a period of time that we might focus on the sanctifying work that the Lord does in our life. Salvation is instant, but sanctification is a lifelong process. And so chapter 7 connected us to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, and the anointed altar. Uh, we read in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The people brought gifts to the anointed altar. Uh, the Hebrew word for anoint is Messiah, the altar, the place of sacrifice. So all of that very much pointing to uh, the cross of Christ. We bring gifts in response to the gift of grace that was given to us in Christ. And then that brought us last week to uh, chapter 8, which connected to John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 
chapter 8 foreshadows this truth with regulations about lamps and lampstands and about the Levites uh, foreshadowing the priesthood of Christ and all believers. That lampstand that was made of pure gold and uh, had seven lamps that symbolized the perfection of God's presence and the light shining on the uh, the table that held the 12 loaves of the showbread that represented the offerings that the people had brought. And so does the light of God uh, shining continually on, uh, on the people. Jesus is the light for the nations. Some love the light and some love the darkness because light exposes, it reveals, it illuminates our hearts and lives. And those of us who have come to love the light by God's saving grace are glad for that illumination to expose those things that are still in darkness that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We saw in this also that priesthood work uh, that foreshadowed the priesthood work of Christ and then of all believers. We talked about the, uh, uh, the fact that the Levites had a sort of five-year apprenticeship period before they did 20 years of the heavy lifting labor and then the twilight years of their life. They were assistants. They assisted in the duties of the tabernacle. But it was that sense of one generation always feeding into the next generation. It's easier to do it yourself. It's easier to have it all done for you, but God's pattern is for the generations to invest into one another, to do ministry together. We see that even in God himself, who is self-sufficient and certainly doesn't need us to carry out his work, but he is delighted to invite us to do work in his name and build his kingdom, serving in his name. And all of that brings us then to chapter 9 and the first 14 verses and the account of the celebration of the Passover. Listen again to God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. He said, have the Israelites celebrate the Passover at the appointed time. Celebrate it at the appointed time at twilight on the 14th day of this month in accordance with all its rules and regulations. So Moses told the Israelites to celebrate the Passover, and they did so in the desert of Sinai at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. But some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. So they came to Moses and Aaron that same day and said to Moses, we have become unclean because of a dead body But why should we be kept from presenting the Lord's offering with the other Israelites at the appointed time? Moses answered them, wait until I find out what the Lord commands concerning you. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, when any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or are away on a journey, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. They are to celebrate it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They are to eat the lamb together with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They must not leave any of it till morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all the regulations. But if a man who is ceremonially clean and not on a journey fails to celebrate the Passover, that person must be cut off from his people because he did not present the Lord's offering at the appointed time. That man will bear the consequences of his sin. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must do so in accordance with its rules and regulations. 
You must have the same regulations for the alien and the native born. So in this passage, we read about the second ever celebration of the Passover. The first celebration of the Passover happened immediately after the actual Passover, the final plague against Egypt, when the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites that had the lamb's blood on the door frames, a tremendous foreshadowing of Christ, who is the lamb that was slain for us. Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, we are saved from death by his blood. And so our passage begins, the Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai in the first month, of the second year after they came out of Egypt and he commanded them to celebrate the Passover at the appointed time, twilight on the 14th day of that month. This Passover celebration took place before the census that we read about in chapter one of this book of the Bible. Remember that God's word has order, but it is not chronological order. The books of the Bible are grouped together by literary categories, law, history, poets, prophets, and the gospels, and the letters. Within books, the accounts are put together in thematic order, not chronological order. So why is the Passover account here? It's because we just read about the setting apart of the Levites who redeemed the firstborn male of Israel. It was on the occasion of the first Passover that consecrating the firstborn was made. And so what happens here is the first and second Passovers are connected thematically by giving the account here. That's a significant point of application because we see that God is the God of order, but it's not chronological order. We struggle with this because most of us think in a very linear chronological manner. I'll do this then this will happen, and then I'll do this, and then this will happen after that. The God of order connects all things through Christ. I will do this for you because of what Christ has done. God did things for Israel based on what Christ would eventually do, an obedience that had not yet happened. God ordained our salvation before creation. If that doesn't blow your mind, you didn't understand what I just said. Our salvation was ordained. It was was guaranteed before creation had even happened, before the fall, before Christ came and sacrificed himself, but it was already ordained to take place. Do you see why your good works have nothing to do with your salvation? Do you see why good works have nothing to do with God's blessing? Do you see why the prosperity gospel is antithetical to the real gospel? We can't make God do anything. Our faith is not what brings God's blessings. The blood of Jesus is what brings God's blessings. Celebrate the Passover, God says. Not as a religious activity to gain God's favor, but as a celebration of God's favor already given. It's the same with our worship. We don't come to worship in order to get God to love us. We come to worship because God loves us, infinitely and eternally. Just as we don't create God's love for us, we don't create the celebration of God's love for us. In verse 3, the Israelites were to celebrate the Passover 
at the appointed time in accordance with all its rules and regulations. And sure enough, verse 5 tells us the Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. None of the Israelites came up to Moses and said, you know what would really make our celebration fun? A bounce house and fireworks and a pinata. They celebrated exactly the way the Lord commanded, according to the rules and regulations, because the rules and regulations had a purpose. Every part of the Passover celebration had purpose. Our worship of God has purpose. The rules and regulations and the worship, the purpose is not for the recharging of our spiritual batteries. The purpose of worship is not a personal pick-me-up. The purpose of worship is not to be a feel-good, self-affirming, fun event. The purpose of worship is to ascribe worth to God. It is the worship of God. To ascribe worth to God. Not about us. The worship of God. God alone is worthy. Now, some churches call themselves non-liturgical and free-flowing, but of course, every church has a liturgy a form for worship. The liturgy might be, let's sing some songs, maybe pray, and then a message, and then we'll sing some more. But that's still a form of liturgy. As R.C. Sproul would say, the question isn't whether you're going to have a liturgy or not, but what will be its structure, style, and content? How much better to have a liturgy that is intentional? How much better to have God's word direct us in this? And so the regulative principle of worship simply means we worship God how he wants to be worshipped, how he's revealed that by his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 speaks about orderly worship, pointing to the divine truth, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And as a result, concluding, but all things should be done decently and in order. It's not a Presbyterian made-up statement that really is a biblical concept. We worship the God of order in an orderly way according to the rules and regulations that God has given. The regulative principle of worship simply says we worship God as he has revealed that he is to be worshipped. But not everything goes perfectly. And so we see that the God of order is also the God of second chances. Verse 6 tells us, But some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. They wanted to celebrate the Passover according to all its rules and regulations, but they were unable to do so because of other regulations concerning ceremonial uncleanness. And so it wasn't pride or laziness or wrong priorities or outright acts of sin that were keeping them from the celebration. It was proper obedience to the law that was keeping them from the celebration. And this is one of those great moments in the Bible that we see that God is not about legalism. It's not about a legalistic obedience to laws. Most tend to think of laws as cumbersome and negatively restrictive. The law is really only cumbersome and restrictive to those who want to do wrong. Law-abiding citizens are good citizens. That's an important thing for us to remember, especially in our contemporary politically charged climate. If laws don't force us to sin, then we can and should follow the laws of the land, even if they are restrictive, even if they seem foolish. 
I think about that every time I'm sitting at a red light and there's no cars around anywhere. Eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and there's nobody out at the Clearview Mall and I'm sitting at a red light and I can't see a car anywhere. But it's a red light and the law says I should stay right there and so I do because I can. There is a process to change laws and create laws that have more wisdom and perhaps I should write the center township council to see if they could do something about that red light. But the modern conversation about the laws of the land are not conversations that get filled with wisdom. They're filled with hatred and pride and self-centered folly on all sides of conversations. What we need is conversations that are filled with wisdom because law-abiding citizens are good citizens who want to do what is right and good. Notice that in our passage, those who are ceremonially unclean simply come to Moses and Aaron and explain their predicament. They don't complain. They don't whine. They don't demand. They don't raise up a mob in order to get what they want. They simply explain their situation to the proper authorities and allow for the proper authorities to make a determination. And we can see that this is the case by Moses' response. Moses himself realizes that they are in uncharted territory. Two sets of God's rules and regulations that have come into a a conflict with each other. So we need to ask the Lord what to do. In verse 8, he says, wait until I find out what the Lord commands concerning you. And in order to hear what it is that the Lord does concerning them, it might be more helpful to consider what God didn't say before what we hear what God did say. God didn't say that exact obedience really isn't that big of a deal. As long as your heart is in the right place, don't worry about it. God didn't say, go ahead and celebrate at this time, but in the future, try to be more careful. God didn't say they should go ahead and celebrate it at a time that's just simply convenient to them whenever that is. God commanded they celebrate the Passover exactly one month later according to then all the rules and regulations. And God didn't go on to say to anyone that anyone was welcome to celebrate a month later if that was more convenient for them. The second chance Passover was only for those who had a valid law-abiding reason for not observing the Passover at the appointed time. So the God of second chances reminds us that ordinarily we are to live by the regulative principle. But the curveballs of life often mean that we must also operate by the irregular principle. The irregular principle is the application of wisdom and the larger scope of God's word to the irregular situations of life. A tribe of polygamists comes to faith in Christ. It's not biblical for them to have more than one wife, but putting away multiple wives would leave women facing shame and poverty and isolation are you to do? Irregular situations call for the irregular principle of biblical wisdom to be put into place by the proper authorities in order to move gradually from irregular to regular. When pursuing one biblical principle brings you into conflict with another biblical principle, the solution is not to simply declare that biblical principles are irrelevant, which is a liberal or secular solution. And neither is, is it to put people's needs as disposable and simply choose one principle over the other, a pharisaical solution. But it's to recognize God extends mercy into a messy world. And the extra warning in verse 13 drives home that point. If a person fails to celebrate the Passover, 
for an invalid reason, they are to be cut off from the people of God. That's pretty weighty. God is serious about extending mercy into a messy world, but God is also serious about the right obedience to his commands. These two statements are not contrary, but cooperative. Mercy is different than leniency. Mercy is not permissiveness. Mercy is not turning a blind eye to the situation. Mercy is not letting you get away with it. Mercy is not giving, mercy is not giving you what you deserve at the cost of Christ. It's not merciful to allow disobedience to continue. Mercy is about moving you toward obedience. If sin causes misery, then mercy cannot be about allowing sin and misery to continue. Blood-bought mercy is about moving us toward obedience. If we are looking forward to being without sin for all eternity, then don't we want a mercy that moves us to that reality as much as possible, as soon as possible? As we sang at the beginning of worship this morning, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his parting voice, changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. All of this helps us then to see that the God of order, who is also the God of second chances, is also the God of aliens and strangers. We get this from verse 14. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must do so in accordance with its rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for the alien and the native born. Or at least that's how the NIV translates that. An alien is, of course, not an extraterrestrial being from outer space some creature from another planet. An alien is simply someone who is not an Israelite, an outsider who wants to become an insider. In fact, the newest NIV translation has changed this word to foreigner. The ESV and the King James call this person a stranger. The Greek translation, interestingly, uh, calls him a proselyte, a convert, someone who has come over from another religion. And all of that is interesting because the Hebrew is really quite simple. The same root word is used for the noun and the verb so that it literally says, if a sojourner shall sojourn among you. I don't make all that point just to show you the fact that I studied Hebrew and Greek, but I hope you're impressed. It is to say that the God of aliens and strangers is a sovereign God. A sojourner is someone who is temporarily in a certain place for a variety of reasons from their point of view. A sojourner has a story to tell about how they arrived wherever they are. God has a story to tell about that too. The sovereign God of the universe directs all our steps. It isn't an accident that a sojourner happened to be crossing the desert and ran into a nation of people crossing the same desert. The Israelites themselves are sojourners. They are temporarily in the wilderness, delivered from Egypt, heading to the promised land. Each of us has a story to tell, and God has a story to tell about us as well. Each person who comes to a saving knowledge of God through Jesus Christ has a story to tell about how that happened. The story is about what God has done. And so we gather together still today to celebrate that story in our worship of God, and particularly in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
the Lord's Supper that is often called the Last Supper because it was our Lord's last supper with his disciples before his crucifixion. The Last Supper was a celebration of the First Supper, the Passover. Our New Testament reading earlier in the service from Matthew's Gospel account of the Last Supper showed that it was clearly a celebration of the Passover in which Jesus revealed himself as the one foreshadowed in that feast so that the Old Testament ordinance of the Passover becomes the New Testament ordinance of the Lord's Supper. At our Monday Thursday service, we're going to trace each of the particular activities of the Passover feast and how each points to its fulfillment in Christ. But for now, what we want to see is that it is a celebration according to God's commands that is in remembrance of grace already received, mercy already given. We celebrate that Christ fulfilled the law, which makes us want to obey God's rules and regulations. We celebrate God's sovereignty in our sojourning through the wilderness. So let's celebrate. And may the truth set you free. Amen.